Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Welcome to the Jim Rutt Show. I am not Jim Rutt. <laughs> I am Stephanie Lepp. I'm the executive producer at the Center for Humane Technology. I work with Tristan Harris. Some of you may be familiar with us in our work from the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I have been a guest on the Jim Rutt Show. I came on last May to talk about deepfakes and truth and epistemology and a bunch of good stuff. But this time I get to play interviewer because Jim just published a piece in Quillette called Musk and Moderation. And so I get to interview you, Jim, about the ideas that you introduce in the piece and, and yeah, and just get a bigger picture view on the whole thing and, and get solution oriented about it. And I guess maybe that's the last piece of intro I'll give is that there have been a gazillion takes on the situation on Elon and Twitter, and most of them are either pro-Elon or anti-Elon or guessing what's going to happen. Your article, Musk in Moderation, is one of the only takes I've seen that actually gets solution-oriented, you know? Because I, I, I would say that before Elon came along, probably most of us had some idea of how we wanted to change Twitter. And now that he's here, here we are just fighting about it. And the way that we are fighting about it is kind of a manifestation of, of, of perhaps some of the problems with Twitter in the first place. But yeah, but Jim, your article is very refreshing because instead of just jumping into the fray, you know, pro-Elon, anti-Elon, you you roll up your sleeves and offer some concrete suggestions for reforming Twitter, specifically with respect to moderation. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to be the guest host today on the show. And with that, I'll go back into character of just being the guest. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, maybe we can just start with some context. So can you give listeners maybe just a very brief summary of what the situation is of Elon purchasing Twitter and a quick overview of your background moderating online communities. Okay. Yeah. The situation is Elon first bought a little bit of Twitter, 9%. Then he quickly realized he had to be a good citizen if he came on the board. Therefore, he declined to go on the board. Then he said he wanted to buy it all. And then they adopted a poison pill, which is a corporate maneuver to make you put up or shut up. And then he rounded up $44 billion, including half of it, his own money, another quarter borrowed and another quarter from other parties, I think, made a tender offer. After a couple of days of negotiations, Twitter agreed to be purchased. It'll take four to six months for the deal to close, which is going to be annoying for us all as we speculate on what's going to happen and watch the controversies back and forth, because whatever's going to happen won't happen right away. And it's important for people to keep that in mind. So that, that's, I would say, the tee up on what's going on with Elon Musk and Twitter. And of course, as Stephanie said, everyone's coming out of the woodwork thinking either this is the 
end of the universe as we knew it or the beginning of the promised land and paradise, you know, and I suspect it'll be neither. And there will be a lot of hard work to be done. And that's assuming the deal goes through. And it's the other thing that's worth noting is there are some ways the deal can still fall apart. I'd give it a 20% chance it'll fall apart. But let's, for the purposes of this conversation, we'll assume it goes forward. As to a quick arc on my background and why I think I might actually know a little bit about this, I actually may be the human being that's been doing this kind of stuff the longest, more or less continuously. I went to work for a company called The Source in 1980. And it was the world's first consumer online service. Literally much of what we have on the web today, we had online for consumers, anybody with a computer and a modem in those days, the old beep, 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 you know, kind of thing that dialed in. And we had bulletin boards, email, news, shopping, stock quotes, chat services, etc. And we had first tens of thousands and quickly hundreds of thousands of users. And it cost, it was text mode only, 120 characters a second, which isn't very fast. And it was 10 bucks an hour, which was really expensive considering it was in 1980 dollars, would be the equivalent of at least $25 an hour today. And you'd say, well, why would anybody do that? And I said, well, because there was no alternative on earth. If you wanted to participate in the early days of the online revolution, it was just us initially. And fairly soon we were joined by a company called CompuServe. And the first round of online business battles was CompuServe versus the source. And CompuServe won and eventually acquired the source. I worked there for a little bit less than two years. I eventually got disillusioned with the incompetent bozos running the place and left and did some startups. But while I was there, two quite relevant experiences. One, I was first the product manager for our bulletin board product called Forums, which is essentially discussion groups, you know, kind of like, you know, forum software, quote unquote, not full on social media, but a definite a linear descendant. And then the one that the company had acquired when it got its technology platform, we decided wasn't that good. So I actually designed our second generation forum system functionally. And then I actually sat next to the, the programmer for about three weeks and designed the UI as well. So I actually designed the whole damn thing. And then I was the product manager for it, which also meant I was the moderator. So here mm. I was uh, moderating one of the first in the world such things and learned a fair bit. And guess what? In the same way the source had a lot of the things we have on the web today, a lot of the issues that we have today, we had in moderating the source forums in 1981. All the usual stuff, you know, people fighting with each other, calling each other names. What are the limits? What can you say? We were owned by the Reader's Digest, which for younger folks, you probably don't recall, a very stodgy publishing company. How they happened to own the source was another story for another day. But, you know, for instance, no obscene words were allowed, period, right? And you couldn't even add, you couldn't even do the asterisk deal, right? No bad words, no George Carlin list of seven bad words and, and things of that sort. But on the other hand, in those days, surprisingly, it wasn't obvious, at least initially, that racial slurs were out of bounds, right? This was 1980 and people let fly with really ugly shit. And, hmm. and we had to make some rules. No, you cannot say that. Mm -hmm. You know, here's 20 slurs that are not allowed in the public places of the source now. You could still use them in chat or you could use them in email, but you couldn't use them in the public places of the source. And then a little later, uh, I was co-product manager for one of the very first things that would be recognizable as social media. It was called Participate. And it was a very strange thing. It was over-engineered and over-complicated and kind of hard for people to understand, but it quickly became one of our top products. And moderation there became 
much more intense than on the bulletin boards because this was like a branching tree structure of discussions where you could branch off any discussion and then rename it and then continue the discussion. And then even more crazy, the inventor of this thing thought that allowing anonymous users was the way to go. And even though on the source, everybody had a you know firm identity locked to their credit card, and, you know, so they, you know, they had a real identity. When we initially launched Participate, we launched it in two flavors, one anonymous and one with people's source identity as their user handle. And as I predicted, the anonymous one became a dumpster fire very, very mm-hmm. rapidly. Mm-hmm. And we turned it off after a few weeks and we continued mm. with the one that was real name only, basically. And it was, you know, there was just all the moderation stuff, but now amped up even higher because of the the nature of the topics people were discussing on our bulletin boards. Actually, a lot of the topics were technical. You know, a lot of the reasons people were on these online systems in the early days was to talk about computers, talk about modems, talk about printers, right? And those aren't nearly as controversial as an <laughs> open-ended conversation platform conceptually like Twitter. Right. Participate right. was kind of like a early pre- precursor of Twitter. And so, again, saw all this stuff. Uh, subsequently, you know, I've been a member of every online community since then, just about all the big ones, participated in virtual communities, ran a virtual community lab as part of Thompson Technology Group, part of the Thompson Corporation, now Thompson Reuters, where we helped our business units use online community as a product to sell to their professional information communities. And I literally had a four-person lab that studied that. And what did we find? moderation was the indispensable ingredient to success. Those business units that just put up an online community for their customers, it never worked. If they had a good moderator, it often worked. That was our number one takeaway. Next step, 1989, I joined the uh, online service called The Well. You know, it's basically been in operation since 85. It had moderation issues at communities and on and on and on and been a, a well member ever since and ended up buying a chunk of the well when all the users got together, or four, 10 of us got together and bought it. So I've been dealing with that issue ever since. I was an early Twitter member, an early Facebook member. I'm an admin of two Facebookers. So anyway, I got lots and lots of experience and, yeah. and lots of opinions. Yeah. Sorry for getting carried away and going out a little bit there. No, I mean, you have over, f- that sounds like four decades of pretty relevant. 41 years. Holy shit. Okay. Well then, yeah. 41 years, both on the management and even development side of things as well and 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 moderator side of things as well as on the user side of things. So with that, yeah, let's go into your piece. So your piece is called Musk and Moderation. It's in Quillette. And the shift that you make, the refreshing shift, I would say that you make is from this kind of absolutist, not particularly helpful question of moderation, yes or no, to the pragmatic, very helpful question of what kinds of moderation would make Twitter a fairer and more effective marketplace of ideas. And as you point out, there's there's kind of this sad irony in that, you know, Musk himself is asking like pragmatic questions of how Twitter should be reformed, but yet he's kind of either like accused of being absolutist or celebrated for being absolutist. But anyways, we're going to go with this with this with this question of what kinds of moderation would make Twitter a fairer and more effective marketplace of ideas. Now, that statement in and of itself implies that the goal of Twitter is to be a fair and effective marketplace of ideas. But putting aside the question of 
whether that is or should be the goal or how we would know that we've achieved that goal. We'll come back to those questions in a bit. Let's just put those aside for the moment and just ask the follow-up question, which is what, what are the different kinds of moderation, just to start out? So you lay out a typology. And so starting at the top of your typology of decorum moderation versus content moderation, and then within content moderation, there's non-point of view and point of view. Don't worry, listeners, we're going to get into all of it. But just starting up top, what is decorum moderation and what are some examples of it? Decorum moderation could also be called behavior. You know, how do we act with respect to each other, irrespective of what we're trying to say? So think about it as uh, the container and the payload, the cup and the coffee, right? So decorum is about what is the nature of the cup? The coffee is what is it you're trying to communicate? And examples of bad decorum, which many systems will moderate, some won't, are personal attacks, racial slurs, extreme ugly wishes. You know, I used an example the other day Two people are arguing over sports teams and they get mad at each other. And one of them says, I hope your house burns down and you and your kids die, right? Oh, God. That is an example, you know, not content really, but it's very bad decorum. Uh-huh. And the other point I like to make about decorum is that it can vary by site. We should not necessarily expect every site in the world to have the same decorum. In the same way, we don't expect manners to be the same in the face-to-face world. And manners in face-to-face, very similar to my concept of decorum online. Example I used in the essay is someone might be out with their friends having drinks and uh, providing all the gory details of the most recent dating debacle uh, <laughs> and probably not do that at their grandma's Sunday dinner table that weekend. Right. So different different things. And and bring it back to online, Disney, aiming, say, for 8 to 14-year-olds, 12-year-olds, might have very different decorum rules and expectations than something like Twitter, which is, you know, aimed more in an adult and quasi-professional environment. So that's the, that's the idea of decorum. And in my years of experience, the idea of running a online community, particularly a broad one, without well-articulated, clear enforced decorum moderations is a prescription for disaster. It goes to shit every time and pretty quickly. Yes. Great. Okay. So decorum is the online kind of equivalent to manners offline. Now, what is content moderation as opposed to decorum? And then what are some examples of, let's start with non-point of view content moderation. Yeah. And and I will say this distinction is a little artificial and the lines aren't crisp between the two kinds of content. So forgive me for that, but it's a place to start at least. And Mm so content, again, is the payload, what you are trying to say, what like, you know, I said, I like the Washington Redskins, you know, football team, that would be content, right? Mm -hmm. If I said it and, uh, and fuck you, if you don't like them, that would be uh, decorum Decorum. Uh as a quick example. And uh, so anything that is the, the, the substance of the message or the message rather than the medium, it might be another way to talk about it in some sense. Again, this isn't crisp, but, but that's the sense. Now into this next distinction between inherently dangerous content and point of view content. This is, again, not black and white, but I think there's relative clarity on it. Uh, Let's start with the inherently dangerous category or inherently bad. And I would include things like 
doxing mm-hmm. and other obvious invasions of privacy, mm-hmm. advocacy of violence, advocacy of serious crimes. And people say, why do you qualify that with serious? And I say, personally, I would not want to moderate out people's right to talk about civil disobedience, you know, going out and having mm-hmm. a demonstration without a permit or throwing mm-hmm. eggs at the cops or something. On the other hand, you might want to draw a line at, you know, seditious conspiracy or advocating a bank robbery or something like that. So there, there's, you know, there's, there's nuance in everything. That's an important takeaway. Yeah. Nothing, nothing is simple in this world. It's all nuance. So I include, you know, advocacy of serious crime, advocacy of violence against specific named people or groups, dangerous things like how to make a bomb, right? Or how to make poison or a real, real live example apparently is instructing teenagers uh, how to get the supplies that commit suicide without your mother finding out. You know, I would put that in the category. This is just inherently dangerous, bad stuff. And Mm -hmm. every system, whether it thinks it's going to be no moderation or not, sooner or later ends up making a list of such things that it doesn't permit on its system. I expect Elon would do so. He might be a bit more liberal than, than others, but he'll have such a list. The final one is where the controversy, I think, comes from. And actually is also, I believe, where the the reason, the motivation for Elon to lay out $44 billion. And even for the richest guy in the world, you know, $44 billion is real money. Mm-hmm. The final category, which is a subset of content. We have dangerous content on one side. We have point of view content in the other, which is essentially everything else. It's where you're trying to say something and you have a perspective. You have something you're trying to communicate. You have a theory behind it, an ideology or just a set of gut reflexes. It doesn't really matter where they come from. And my perspective is that moderation should be close to non-existent in point of view. We should not be making decisions about what is online in the public square based on the point of view. And so what is an example of point of view? One of the examples I give in the paper is QAnon, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm first to admit, bunch of idiots. I think the chances of it, their ideas being true are exceedingly small. The only reason I say exceedingly small is I tend to be an agnostic type person rather than an atheistic type person. And yet they were banned in a coordinated campaign by Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and several others. And I think I would disagree with that because that's a point of view. It may be a stupid point of view and a Mm -hmm. bad point of view, but it's a point of view. And I also laid out three examples that I find to be wrong and bad, which people will laugh at or get mad about, which are Christianity, astrology, and Marxist-Leninism. I think they're bad, and I could make arguments at least two of them are as bad or worse than QAnon. And yet I think it would be very inappropriate for me to ban those topics from Twitter, shall we say. And in the same sense, I think it's wrong that Twitter should ban QAnon, because who are they to decide on what point of views should exist in the world, so long as they're presented decorously, without personal attack, without doxing, without coordinated bad behavior, like trying to, you know, mob people and and harass them and those kinds of things. So that's, that's, I think, the key move here is let's ignore the dangerous content category and compare decorum to point of view when it comes to, to moderation. I would argue if I were taking over Twitter is I would actually strengthen the decorum moderation. I read the the guidelines on decorum that you could allocate to decorum in the Twitter moder- rules. They're pretty skimpy, frankly. Mm. And it's one of the reasons in retrospect why 
Twitter is considered such a, a hellhole by a lot of people. Is it called decorum or what? what is it no, called? Or do you just identify just what that. you consider to be? Okay. I could go through their list and I, I don't have it in front of me. I go through their list. Yeah, and say, yeah this is decorum. Uh-huh. That's not uh-huh. decorum. Okay. Got it. Okay. It's like they need more decorum and less and less point of view stuff. And they should be more explicit about the dangerous stuff. It's kind of vague. Okay. You mean the, the doxing? Yeah, that kind the of stuff. The non-point of view content. Yeah, non-point okay. of view content. So that's Got my it. take on that. And I'll give you my thoughts on why, right? Because this is kind of uh, controversial. Well, before before we go, let me just kind of, so that listeners can kind of, if you can just, listeners, imagine a tree. It's like you have moderation at the top, two categories. There's decorum. And then there's content. And then within content, it splits into non-point of view, which is where all the dangerous stuff, as Jim calls it, joxing. And then there's point of view content moderation, which is where we get into fraught territory. Okay, so now that listeners have that image in their minds, go go on, Jim. What's your case? Okay, here's my case. And this is where you know people tend to jerk back and they say, are you serious? You know, you'd let QAnon back on? And I'd say, or you'd let Trump back on? Or neo-Nazis? And, uh, and I'd say, yep. But first, before I let them on, I would tighten up decorum a lot. Mm-hmm. And you know, Trump, I imagine, would uh, trip himself up over the decorum rules pretty quick. We'd show him to the door. And if he doesn't, Oh, well, you know, he has a point of view. So you say, why would you let what you think are bad ideas into the marketplace of ideas? And this is really, really important, is that nobody can know what ideas might be useful at some time to the human race, or certainly nobody has the judgment to be able to make that call. And if we look at history, people are always trying to squelch the ideas at the edge. And I I call it the uh, green sprouts issue. At the edge of of our farm field, there's always some little green sprouts. Most of them are worthless in the same way that most fringe ideas are worthless. And this is a really important analogy. I uh, was talking to an evolutionary theorist on Wednesday about this, and he confirmed that more than 99% of mutations in biology are bad for the offspring and don't make them more fit. But if it wasn't for the less than 1% that helped the offspring, we'd still be bacteria. We would never mm-hmm. have evolved. Uh, I was talking to another guy this morning, and he came up with another very nice homey analogy, which is garage bands, right? Most of them suck. They're terrible. Uh, But if we (laughs) banned garage bands, we'd never have any new music. And so I think it's hugely important that there be toleration for an open marketplace of ideas of any idea, no matter how reprehensible anybody thinks it might be, so long as it's presented without violating decorum and without introducing hard danger to find its place in the marketplace. And if people adhere to the idea, it'll get more and more listenings. If it doesn't, it'll go away, as do most ideas, as do most garage bands. And so I think this is a hugely important idea that most people don't think about when they say, but that's bad. Can't we make those bad things go away? Mm-hmm. Well, if you make the bad things go away, you're going to inevitably kill some good things. And you know, I have that experience, at least what I think is a good thing. I'm one of the co-founders of a group of about 25 people who started a social change organization called Game B. And it's got some interesting and radical ideas, but it's entirely nonviolent. It's not even political. It's more how to live. And Facebook came after us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still don't know why. My guess is they, their algorithm somehow thought we looked a little bit like 
QAnon, even though our content is nothing like QAnon. But for some reason, they came after us and tried to kill us in permanent lifetime bans with no explanation. You know, the classic Facebook Kafka-esque Orwellian method of enforcement. We were very fortunate. We had friends that were loud. We got 6 million likes on our tweet about all this. And Facebook realized they'd made some mistake. We had some people we knew in Facebook and it was reversed. But if it hadn't been by the good chance that we were well-connected, we would have been wiped out. How many ideas, how many green shoots that could have saved the world have been wiped out by Facebook and Twitter's campaign against things that they think are bad fringe ideas. So mm-hmm. uh, we have to accept the bad to get the good. In the same way, biology has to live with bad mutations to get the uh, one in a thousand good mutations. And this is a core idea, which for whatever reason, isn't deeply in circulation. And mm-hmm. my sense is well, if people get this idea or if they agree that this is indeed the case, then the, their libido to squelch things they think is bad maybe will reduce a little bit. Great. I, I, I want to get into that idea and, I, and I'm going to push on it a little bit. But before we get there, um, I do also want, so basically what you're, what you're making the case for is strengthening decorum on Twitter. Could we call it loosening content moderation, strengthening decorum, loosening perhaps I would make more detailed the dangerous content. Viewpoint. Right, right. More detailed the dangerous content. I would loosen almost to zero viewpoint moderation. Okay. So strengthen decorum, clarify non-point of view content, and then loosen slash maybe even let go of viewpoint content moderation. The other thing you advocate for, and I want to play this out more of what it would even look like on Twitter, and sure, we can apply it to Trump and what that would look like. But before we play it out a little more, you also make the case that a moderation policy like this would need a system of enforcement and appeal. And the one that you elaborate in your piece is very, very, very detailed. So let's not go into all the detail, but just at a high level, what is the enforcement and appeal protocol that you would recommend? Okay. And again, this is from actual experience and lots of it, which is that people will obey rules most of the time if they're understandable and they're clear. And so it's my view that all the platforms should rewrite their rules like the criminal law is written. You know, when a policeman arrests you, they don't say, well, I'm arresting you for breaking the law, right? Yeah. Uh, they say, no, I'm, I'm arresting you for spitting on the sidewalk or whatever it is, which is statute 13.4.1. It'll be right there on the summons, right? Mm-hmm. And so the platforms need to restructure their codes into tree structures, and I further propose that the leaf node, that the final thing, the actual law, the equivalent of spitting on the sidewalk, be written in plain English and be no longer than 100 words. Further, whenever they moderate somebody or discipline them, they must take the actual artifact, that the post that was in question or multiple posts, if it's a a pattern kind of thing, and they must say, this is the statute, 13.4.1. This is what you did, right? Mm -hmm. And and they don't do that. They just give Mm -hmm. you this, you violated our terms of service. You go, well, that's Mm -hmm. real helpful, right? It could have been anything. So that's reform number one. Number two, inevitably in this day and age, at the scale these things are operated on, some percentage of these are going to have to be algorithmic. I don't like that. I wish it wasn't so. But at the economic density of Twitter, they're going to have to have some of it be algorithmic. But people should be able to appeal to a human for a quick review, five minutes, last one minute. And 
that review should happen in 24 hours. The other thing is just horrible. If they do have an appeals process, it can take a month on Facebook in particular. I never had to appeal anything on Twitter, so I don't know. But it could take weeks to a month, which is totally unacceptable in a real-time flow of conversation. And then finally, and this is, I think, huge for setting the ecosystem up correctly, I advocate a quite complicated, read it in the article, but I think game theoretically correct way to have a second appeal where you can essentially put up money, say $100 is the example I give, and say, I believe I've been wrong. I'm putting up $100. And it then goes to arbitration by a professional arbitrator from the American Arbitration Association, which I recommend. I've actually used those people to arbitrate mass claims in cyber squatting around domain names. And it worked really well. They're really professional. And if they, if the arbitrator, who is a professional who does arbitration for a living, looks at what you posted, looks at the statute you supposedly broke, 13.4.1, spitting on the sidewalk, uh, if they find against you, you lose your $100. So this very substantially limits the number of these appeals. Right. You got to stake real money. And now here's the fun part. If you win, the platform pays you 10 times what you staked. So oh, I put, wow. up put up $100 and I win. <laughs> Facebook or Twitter <laughs> pays me 1000 And oh, by the way, this is, I think, radical, maybe a little excessive. I propose in the paper that you can stake up to a million dollars. Oh my God. So I think I'm right. I'm putting up a million dollars. I win, I get 10 million, right? Uh, and then, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah. what does that do? Think about this from a game theoretical economist mind perspective. It means that Facebook or Twitter has to be right 90% of the time. If they are right 91% of the time, they'll actually make money off this thing, right? Because they'll pay off 10 to 1 when they lose, but they'll take the pot. Uh, yeah. the 91% of the time that they're right. So they will actually make money on these cases. Yeah. And that produces a, a game theoretic pressure to make them be yeah. right about 90% yeah, yeah. of the time. No, it's nice. You reverse engineered from the goal. The goal is Twitter should be right 90% of the time. So how do we set up the incentives so that, that that's the case? That's the case. And then, and then a final thing to, to answer the objection, which is well, a very good objection, which is you know a lot of people can't afford $100 to defend their rights. So I propose there be a market in these appeals, just as there is for <laughs> right. personal injury uh, law cases, where you'd post your 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 claim. Here's my post. Here's the rule I supposedly broke. I'm looking for people to back my appeal. Mm-hmm. And anyone who sees this in this marketplace reads it and says, hey, look, that looks like bullshit to me. I'll put some money behind that. And that, that goes into the pot. And then when the thing's adjudicated, the third party staker, the person who saw it on the market, gets 80% of the win. The person whose appeal it is gets 20%. So they actually make money without putting any money up. <laughs> And I love if, how elaborate this is. And then if, <laughs> if they lose their appeal, then the, the third party backer loses their money. So everyone's got skin in the game at $100 minimum. It keeps the nuisance claims out. Uh, it allows even a dirt poor person without two nickels to rub together to have justice if other people agree that they've been wronged. And it basically forces the platform to be right 90% of the time or lose their lunch. Okay, so let's let's play this out. So let's take this... We're strengthening decorum. We're clarifying non-viewpoint content moderation. We're either loosening or just letting go entirely of viewpoint content moderation. We have this kind of gamified skin in the game enforcement and appeal protocol. So let's actually apply this to Trump. Let's say, yeah. So, so we let Trump back in and he inevitably 
breaks decorum, what happens? Okay, so he breaks. Uh, let's say we have let's say we have a decorum misgendering as a rule that that's you know the equivalent of a racial slur or other thing that polite people don't do with each other. And Trump just so he just because he's Trump decides he's going to misgender a uh, trans <laughs> news person who had asked him an embarrassing question, and so Twitter. Probably it's Trump. They actually have a human do this, right? They flag him as a, a blue check. And rather than going through the algorithm, they have a human watch the blue check. And so they issue him a summons, which says, Trump, you violated 13-4.1, which is knowingly misgendering a person or mis- just, mi- just misgendering a person. And he says, I don't know what he says. He says, yeah, yeah, he says, I did. I'm going to appeal. He says, I'm going to appeal, appeal okay, so, anyway. So, so yeah. it appeals anyway. So it goes to a, a human for the first free appeal who looks at it for no more than five minutes and makes a decision. And that's the, the appeal, the appellant, the internal employee of Twitter says, nope, you're guilty. And that's, that goes back to Trump. And so then he can, if he want, either take his punishment, whatever it is, which, and oh, by the way, I didn't put it in the article, but I, I do believe these punishments, as they are online, should be scaled, right? So that something like that's probably not a death penalty, but it might be a three-day timeout, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. let's say they, they give a three-day timeout. Okay. And then uh, so, uh, it's probably about a three-day timeout kind of penalty. Okay. And so then he says, oh, I'm not going to take no three-day power. I'm rich. I'm Trump. God damn it. I'm putting up a million dollars to uh, stake on my appeal. Uh, mm-hmm. Or low, being oh better being Trump and a sleaze ball that he is, he says I'm going to put up a thousand dollars, and then I'm going to ask all my supporters to put up the rest of the money. That's how Trump would do it, right? Exactly. You know, he's a, he knows how to use OPM, other people's money. Mm-hmm. He puts up a thousand. Here's my claim. It goes in the marketplace. He tweets, "Hey, I put this claim in the marketplace. I want all my supporters to come and back it," and they would instantly. And it goes to uh-huh. a million. Goes to a million. Yeah. It, it, okay. It now goes to a third-party professional arbitrator, and they, by the way, have no idea what the stake is. That's an important part of the game. And so so this professional arbitrator uh, looks at the case. Do they know that it's Trump? Nope. They don't don't know or care. They don't know anything. All they see is the text and the rule that that it supposedly broke. And so they then, and these these are professional arbitrators. And so then the question is, how do they decide? If they decide against Trump, he loses his million dollars. It actually has to be a hard stake. And there's right. no. Well, he loses OPM. He loses other people. Well, they lose his friends. Even worse, he, he causes his uh, his followers to lose. Okay, you know, nine, this is interesting. Nine hundred nine thousand ninety nine dollars, and he loses a thousand. Yeah, and, uh, that, and that's what happens. And on the other hand, if if he wins, then Twitter pays him or pays him twenty percent of ten million dollars, so two million dollars, and his backers get an eight to one return on their investment. All right. I mean, I think, yeah, I, and I love going through this because it's such a more, I find, helpful, you know, it, it's like there's so much fear, obviously, right now that Musk is going to reinstate Trump. And so, but like, how how can we, let's say, have our free speech principles about us? You know, it's like we don't want to just like reverse engineer some policies so that the outcomes we don't want don't happen. Exactly. We would like to be principled. And so it's, it's you know, and then you run, ex- you run thought experiments through your, and you just came up with while you were running this thought experiment, kind of new, maybe new ways to make it work or make it 
less weaponizable or whatever it is, but knowing that the system is going to have to evolve. But yeah, I find it very helpful to just run through the thing and see that it ends up working. And maybe Trump is kicked out every three days, you know, for three days, for three, over and over again and losing people's money over and over again until, but then you, then you just run into the bigger picture issue of, you know, it's still stacked against us, you know, stop the steal, stop the kick out. But, no, actually, you know, I just had a thought. That's a bigger issue. No, go, yeah, I, go for it. I love thinking out loud and, uh, which is just like the criminal law. This is the analogy I've been using throughout second offenses are punished at a higher level. You know, for instance, burglary, first time burglary of an uninhabited house might be one year, right? Second Mm -hmm. offense, five years. Third offense, life, right? And so, for instance, misgendering might have in its statute, right in the words, first offense, three-day suspension. Second offense, 30-day suspension. Third offense, lifetime ban. Mm -hmm. And so, if you write these laws, because these are laws, essentially, and he you know, continues to do misgendering after the third offense, he's gone for life or for five years or right. something. And he, and he wrote his own fate. Yeah. And he did and it. He, he did it himself. He did it himself. And if, and if he starts a campaign called stop the kick out or whatever, then, you know, we have bigger problems that Twitter is maybe, or maybe not, or maybe going to help us or not help us solve. You know, that's, there's a bigger thing. There's a bigger thing going on here. Just like, so what? The rules are the rules. He chose to play. Sorry. That's just the way the machinery works. Just the yeah. way it is. And it's transparent and the rules apply to everyone. So I want to actually now come back to the question of the goal of Twitter and go from there then to other suggestions that you make for reforming the platform. But so again, this line, you know, what kinds of moderation would make Twitter a fairer and more effective marketplace of ideas implies that the goal of Twitter is to be a fair and, and effective marketplace of ideas. And I guess, yeah. So the first question is just, is what, is that, what does that mean? What would it mean what does it mean to be a fair and effective marketplace of ideas? And do you think that is the goal of Twitter or should be the goal of Twitter or could even be the goal of Twitter? I think it should be and could be. And to a, to some degree, it is, right? I run into all kinds of new ideas. You know, I point to a group that's been called out on the web, described as called the liminal web, right? <laughs> uh-huh. And there's an essay written by this guy, Joe Lightfoot, And it includes a bunch of people I know who I never would have met if it hadn't been for the online world, Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so it actually does work as a marketplace of ideas to some degree today, but it's just not a very efficient or fair one. So I would suggest that if we can make it more efficient, more fair, more effective, uh, then we can help with it being a marketplace of ideas where good ideas gradually get get adherence, right? I now support the people of the Liminal Web, some of them, I give them five bucks a month on Patreon, for instance, uh-huh. right? And I never would have met them if it hadn't have been for Twitter and Facebook. And so there's an example of their ideas have gotten some adherence from me and from lots of other people. And there are lots of other ideas I've run across online, most of them, of course, which are total shit. And, yeah. you know, I never want to hear from those people again. And if they are too insistent, I'll block them. So that's the idea of a marketplace of ideas. Now, of course, there are other, other issues that I didn't get into in the article, but I actually did have in the original draft, the article, damn editors cut it, which was uh, we do have to do something about helping 
bring light to what statements are true versus what statements are false. Mm-hmm. And this is a very fraught and difficult issue. And I don't claim to have even come close to solving entirely, but I did throw out a, a couple of loose ideas, which is to add another dimension. You know, when you put a post on Twitter, you know, make a, make a tweet, then there's comments, right? And that's one dimension, which is engaging with the substance of your tweet. I would suggest at another dimension, which is pointers to evidence. And anybody on Twitter would be able to essentially put a URL in that is a commentary on the claims in the tweet and that people could then vote on those links as whether they are useful support or whether they point towards the tweet being factual or or, or not not factual. Mm -hmm. And so then you'd have a second dimension, which is Mm. crowdsourced. Nice. It's very post-normal science. Third parties, right? And and it's a separate dimension. You got comments here and you got pointers to support there. And I don't don't know if that's enough. I don't think it's the best idea, but I think it's a start. And we do do other things. I think it's interesting because right now there's no – like likes or retweets, there's no qualification of it's just it's just activity. Whereas if you were to be able to actually kind of qualify activity or qualify a response to something as to whether that you think it's it's factual or you think it's not factual, I think that would be helpful. But just to return to the question of the goal, I want to stay here for a moment because part of why, you know, I, I don't think Twitter was necessarily built to for 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 this goal let's say to be a fair and effective marketplace of ideas which doesn't mean that it can't that it isn't that in some ways or that it can't become more that but it wasn't necessarily built with that kind of singular goal in mind and so if if let's say if Elon or leadership were to decide like this is actually our 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 goal our top priority for this technology is to make it a fair and effective marketplace of ideas. The next question I would ask you is what what are indicators? What are metrics that to you would indicate that the platform is becoming a more fair and effective marketplace of ideas? And I would say just the last thing I'll add to the question is right now, the marketplace, Twitter is arguably, what is it? Like outrage fueled Tower of Babel? Like there are some marketplaces in there, but it's, you know, just like insert what we know from the social dilemma. So the metrics might evolve, the metrics might change, but right now we're in like echo chamber land. So what metrics would you be looking for in order to let you know that the platform is on the right track? That's a good question. Real basic ones is, are the Moderation act activities falling. If the the number of times we have, especially decorum moderation infractions, if they're falling over time, we are building a healthier culture and ecosystem. And it's been my experience that when you ha- make the rules very explicit, you always enforce them, and you're very very clear about the enforcement mechanisms. People aren't stupid, uh, not real stupid at least, and they learn. Right? Uh, even Trump might be capable of learning. I don't know, but not everybody is, and so there are you know, there are people that just have no impulse control, and you will have that. But there's lots of other people who have better impulse control, and they will learn not to do the bad things. So that will be one measure. A second might be a statistical sample 
of, let's say, 10,000 tweets once a month, taken at random, analyzed by graduate students, you know, high quality, low cost labor, and scored on their utility or something like that. So you could say, uh, all right, this is a tweet about uh, Kim Kardashian's ass. All right, that's a zero, right? You know, here's a tweet about, uh, you know, how to lose weight. That's a seven, right? Here's a tweet about the status of string theory. That's a 10, right? Something like that, you know, that you could literally assess on a statistically valid basis the uh, the quality of the di- or the importance of the discourse. I don't know if importance is the right word because you're mm-hmm. talking about your good restaurants. That's sense-making, right? Yeah. Uh, Talking about your favorite Here, I'm romance. Gonna throw some, I'm going to throw some kind of like messy ideas at you and see what okay, you think. So, because if, we're, if, if what we're in right now is this outrage fueled echo chamber, so I mean, one one thing is like, is there less outrage or like is out, outrage going less? Vi- like, what is the tone? Oh, yeah, there, that's, a good, that's a good one. You, uh, Something you, around like the emotional tone and yeah, what yeah. kind of. You can do that, that with software. Free software okay. will tell you the emotional tone. I got a package actually that does that. Okay, great. So I would I would have that be part of what we're tracking. I would great. also have this echo chamber. Like, are there wormholes being built <laughs> between these echo chambers? Like, are some of them like merging or starting to interact with each other? It's you something do network I'd be analysis. In. Yeah, and because this is all in the spirit of like, yeah, what defines a truly healthy and thriving marketplace of ideas where. You know, the different spheres are like there are different spheres, but they are connected to each other. You know, the tone, the emotion. I mean, I'm curious about, you know, it's like more, more likes from people who usually don't like the same thing or or mm-hmm. something like that, or like unfollows that then result in follows again, or like blocks that then result in like, how are we gauging the way that we're starting to kind of like find common ground with each other, I guess. And then yeah. that, yeah. There's a bunch of things you can do. So you, could, as you point out, I love that. Network analysis, that you, could, this, you can literally do, study the graph of messaging and see if messages are going across the clusters at a higher rate. And while you were saying it, I had an idea for sort of a top of the food chain metric. Again, something that can be done really easily in software. There's free software that's pretty accurate to measure optimism versus pessimism. What would happen if the level of optimism started to rise on the platform as you introduce these reforms? It strikes me that that would be a pretty strong indicator that you're doing something right. Yeah. I mean, what is the what is the ratio they say in relationships? It should be five to one. (laughs) Five to one. Optimism, pessimism. To your partner in between you and your like five to one positive and negative. And not, it's not just because isn't that nice. It's also because like, what are we capable of doing together when that's the emotional, when that's the ratio of the emotional tone of our relationship? Well then, okay. So then now I want to go back to the, what you, I think, so I can't remember exactly when, where we were when we touched upon this, but Like, do do we want to completely let go of viewpoint content moderation? And, oh, oh, no, it was, you were saying that the the key idea that you wish more people understood is that we need to let the green sprouts sprout and we can't predict which sprouts are going to be the ones that become the amazing bands. I'm not mixing metaphors. (laughs) Amazing garage bands. Okay. So, so I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to kind of lead into it here. So just bear with me for a sec. So I think, I think part of what's challenging about free speech is that it's both an end in itself and a means to bigger ends. 
right? It's an end in itself in the sense that we have a, we have a yearning for self-expression. That is a human need. So it is an end in itself. It's also a means to like letting the green sprouts sprout is part of what enables our democracy. It enables collective intelligence. I mean, enables Musk's stated intention of, of extending the light of consciousness. But in order for for freedom of expression to be a means to these bigger ends, you know, in order for, let's say, more speech to be a remedy for bad speech, we actually do need a healthy marketplace of ideas. Twitter is not right now a healthy marketplace of ideas, right? It's this Tower of Babel situation. So that means, I wonder if that means that we might have to give ourselves training wheels, we can call them. Like we might have to have heavier moderation right now until these metrics of emotion and the social graph and whatever show us that we can like let let those training wheels go. And so we might have to use tactics that we don't like to change the, the circumstances in order to not have to use those tactics anymore, right? And, and, and in order to kind of alleviate, I would say, the tension between free speech as a as an end in itself and free speech as a as a means to bigger ends. So the question for you is given the tower of babel situation that we are in might it be the case that we do need stricter moderation and maybe even viewpoint like content moderation in order to transform the tower into a marketplace of you know move it in that direction so that we can actually handle be ready for less strict and maybe no viewpoint content moderation. Let me ponder that for a second. I think I would start with increasing the strength and the clarity and the enforcement on decorum. Because when I think about what goes wrong on Twitter, it's mostly not because people's ideas are so heinous, though sometimes people show up with heinous ideas. It's mostly because they start yelling at each other and you know, interpersonal problems rather than substantive problems. And so I would say, and based on my relatively broad experience on Twitter, though mine's somewhat idiosyncratic, because oddly enough, my Twitter, people don't talk about team blue, team red politics very much. Mm. You know, they, they talk about regenerative agriculture, permaculture, you're you're in a nice little secluded little marketplace yeah, yeah, science, <laughs> within science, the power of Babel. <laughs> yeah, hard, hardcore science, you know, and there's a little bit of that. But even when I go out and, you know, I do rowl around a little bit, uh, especially during political season. Again, it's not not generally that the, you know, for instance, you know, Hillary or Hillary versus Trump's kind of a bad example. But let's say Bernie versus Hillary. Okay, that got really, really ugly in 2016. I mean, people were yelling at each other and stomping off and making acquisitions, doxing, you know, doing all the bad decorum ideas. And so that the conversation ended up, you know, tribalizing people who were actually fairly close, actually, in terms of their content. And I would suggest that's a perfect example of where decorum moderation would have made a huge difference. People would have backed away from the interpersonal, the fighting for the sake of fighting and said, all right, at the end of the day, the differences are about this big. And truthfully, I can live with either one of them. Uh, wouldn't that have been a hell, heck of a lot better outcome than having so many people walk away mad that they didn't vote at all? And guess what happened? The great Cheeto got in. And so there's an example where 
decorum moderation would have made all the difference. And I think that more of the Tower of Babel is interpersonal relationship problems than it is supposedly heinous ideas. Not to say that heinous ideas don't occasionally occur, and with no viewpoint moderation, they might become a little bit more common, but most people actually don't have heinous ideas, right? You know, I can't remember the last time I ran across a a truly heinous idea on Twitter. I mean, some bad ones, some stupid ones, but... Yeah, uh, and maybe this is also just a a question of, of like... Do we feel, do we trust the metrics we have chosen enough to let them determine the slider, you know, let them determine whether we need training wheels before we're ready to take them off and have no viewpoint content moderation whatsoever? Yeah, are we we willing to be kind of empirical in that way about it? Gotta be, gotta be. Yeah. Again, this is something that comes from my work in complexity science. Our ability to to predict the unfolding of a high dimensional complex system is very low. (laughs) Fairly soon, you just don't know what the hell will happen, right? So you have to be empirical. You have to do what we call probes on the system, right? You know, let's say you know, let's say Elon Musk hires Jim Rutt and five of his friends to rewrite the moderation rules. Damn good idea, by the way, Elon. And, uh, uh, and, then, and in the meantime, uh, the people at the Internet Observatory at Stanford and Center for Humane Technology come up with the metrics, right? Mm. And we put them both into place at the same time. Uh, no, actually, to do it right scientifically, we run it for 90 days without any change to moderation, and you get your, your metrics. Then we introduce the new moderation system, and we let it run for another 90 days, and we see if the metrics improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we do, do, we go, ah, we're on the right exactly. path. Exactly. Great. Love and then it. We, but then we have the smart people of both teams get together and say, okay, our, our metrics are going up, but maybe if we tweak moderation in this way, it will go up a little faster. So we, yes. so we say, all right, instead of being 10 to 1 on the top level second appeal, we reduce that to five to one because it appears there's some ways to game the system when it's 10 to one. So we change 10 to one to five to one, wait 90 days, see if that improved the metrics, some specific metrics that we're looking at. And if it does, we go, hmm, that was good. Uh, if it went, goes the other way, we go, oops, we probably made a mistake. Let's pick it back Great. up to 10. So Great. this is the what I call in the game B world, theory, practice, theory, loop. Right. Yeah. Co-evolution between theory and practice. Practice. Yeah. Absolutely indispensable when dealing with complex systems. And oh, by the way, this is an important point to make. Uh, one of my concerns about Elon, even though I'm mostly optimistic about him, is the worlds he's worked in and been so unbelievably successful have been what are called the complicated domains. Mm-hmm. And the distinction between complicated and complex, and complex. is important. And here's how you, an easy way to know the difference. In the complicated domain, you can take something apart and put it back together again, and it'll still work. If you take your car apart all the way down to its pieces, put it back together again, and it would still be your car, and it would still work, assuming your mechanic was actually competent. But in the complex domain, it's not just the parts, but it's their dance. It's their dynamics that matter. For instance, you could not take your body apart and put it back together again. Your body is a complex system. You could not take the economy apart and put it back together again. It's a complex system. Twitter is a highly complex system. It's a constantly changing graph of connections, and every node on that graph is a strategic agent. So it's a classic example of complex systems. So the other thing that needs to be brought to the management of Twitter, and it's not uh, in Elon Musk's wheelhouse, 
is the complexity lens that mm-hmm. has to give you some epistemic humility about how much you can know and how much you have to proceed by empirical theory, practice, theory, practice loop. And I think uh, that would help him a lot if he could develop or acquire that lens, essentially, as he starts to think strategically about proceeding to make changes at, at Twitter. Great. Well, I wish we could keep going. I know you have a hard stop in six minutes, so I'm going to ask you one last question. And as a, as a part of the mini preambles of the last question, so as you know, I, I think that Elon Musk is very well positioned to be a bridge from game A to game B. Okay, so he is, he's, there are, there is this question of how how does one transition from game A to game B? There can be many ways, but one, one way, let's say, is dominate game A and then transition. And he has dominated game A in multiple industries now, right? Transportation, energy, and, and he happens to have this game B sensibility. Like he's, the elites are a thorn in his side. For him, it's like, do you really need to hold me accountable to short-term profit maximization? You know, I'm trying to get us to the stars here. So, so perhaps, and this is, you know, being me, perhaps being psychotically optimistic, but perhaps the first industry that he could transition us from game A to game B is, lo and behold, surprise, perhaps social media. This is a total surprise to all of us. And, um, and so I do think there's an enormous opportunity for you, specifically you, Jim Rutt, to help Elon, not just with, with Twitter, but in all kinds of ways. And so my last question for you is to speak directly to him and I'll do it. I'll do it too. So hi, Elon. (laughs) So Jim is going to tell you how he would love to help you. And he's going to give you a way to contact him. So go for it, Jim. (laughs) All righty. Let's see here. Wow. There's a, there's a, there's a big one. Well, first, I'm going to comment on your hypothesis that Elon Musk may be game B without even knowing it. And well, I tell, said, tell him, tell him. Don't okay, tell me. I talk, I say, there's a big sign to me that you're on the right track. And that's when you sold all your houses and fancy cars, right? It's a very game B move to get rid of your couple hundred million dollars worth of residential real estate and live in a $120,000, very modest house in West Texas. That's a game B move, right? Mm-hmm. Our possessions are not what's important about us, right? The shiny objects are not why we have our life here on earth. It's to do things, to make people happy, make love, go to Mars. And so I think you're game B and you don't even know it yet, uh, Elon. <laughs> and so in terms of what we could do for you, I would say not just me. I'm just one one kind of semi-retired dude. But there's a whole group of people that have been thinking this way for a number of years. And we could help you think through what it means to use a complexity lens at Twitter per our conversation. We should get Stephanie involved too, not just these other people. We developed the <laughs> metrics, in, you know, CHE plus Stanford equals the metrics. The Santa Fe Institute plus the Game B crowd comes up with the interventions and the changes to moderation and a bunch of other things, by the way. The article lays out some other things like, I'm with you 100%, Elon. Get rid of advertising or at least make it a small percentage of your total revenue. And that changes the dynamics in a very positive way, which I'd love to go into. So we'll put together two teams, one on metrics, one on interventions. Uh, We'll help you think about Twitter as a complex system whose goal is to become the collective sense-making mind for the human species. And here's the payoff for you for the things you want. If you could get the humans to work this way at that quality, we'll get to Mars a hell of a lot faster. Oh, yeah. 
And how does how does how does Elon get in touch with you? Uh, send me an email at Jim Rutt, J-I-M-R-U-T-T at JimRuttShow.com. All right. Well, with that, <laughs> thank you, Jim, for inviting me to guest host on your show. For listeners who want to be in touch, you can find me, haha, on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> at Steph Lepp. And and yeah, Elon, I hope you you solicit Jim's wisdom in your endeavors, starting with Twitter. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.